J.C. Ryle's Devotional Thoughts on the Gospel of Luke. Section 37. The Faith of the Centurion. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. These verses describe the miraculous cure of a sick man. A centurion or officer in the Roman army applies to our Lord on behalf of his servant and obtains what he requests. A greater miracle of healing than this is nowhere recorded in the Gospels. Without even seeing the sufferer, without touch of hand or look of eye, our Lord restores a dying man to health by a single word. He speaks, and the sick man is cured. He commands, and the deadly disease departs. We read of no prophet or apostle who wrought miracles in this manner. We see here the finger of God. We should notice in these verses the kindness of the centurion. It is a part of his character which appears in three ways. We see his kindness in his treatment of his servant. He cares for him tenderly when sick and takes pains to have him restored to health. We see his kindness again in his feeling towards the Jewish people. He did not despise them as other Gentiles commonly did. The elders of the Jews bear this strong testimony. He loves our nation. We see his kindness lastly in his liberal support of the Jewish place of worship at Capernaum. He did not love Israel in word and tongue alone, but in deed. The messengers he sent to our Lord supported their petition by saying, He has built a synagogue for us. Now where did the centurion learn this kindness? How can we account for one who was a heathen by birth and a soldier by profession, showing such a spirit as this? Habits of mind like these were not likely to be gathered from heathen teaching or promoted by the society of a Roman camp. Greek and Latin philosophy would not recommend them. 
tribunes, consuls, prefects and emperors would not encourage them. There is but one account of the matter. The centurion was what he was by the grace of God. The Spirit had opened the eyes of his understanding and put a new heart within him. His knowledge of divine things no doubt was very dim. His religious views were probably built on a very imperfect acquaintance with the Old Testament scriptures. But whatever light from above he had, it influenced his life, and one result of it was the kindness which is recorded in this passage. Let us learn a lesson from the centurion's example. Let us, like him, show kindness to everyone with whom we have to do. Let us strive to have an eye ready to see, and a hand ready to help, and a heart ready to feel, and a will ready to do good to all. Let us be ready to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. This is one way to recommend our religion and make it beautiful before men. Kindness is a grace that all can understand. This is one way to be like our blessed Saviour. If there is one feature in Jesus' character more notable than another, it is his unwearied kindness and love. This is one way to be happy in the world and see good days. Kindness always brings its own reward. The kind person will seldom be without friends. We should notice, secondly, in this passage, the humility of the centurion. It appears in his remarkable message to our Lord when he was not far from his house, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, neither did I think myself worthy to come unto you. Such expressions are a striking contrast to the language used by the elders of the Jews. He is worthy, said they, for whom you should do this. I am not worthy, says the good centurion, that you should enter under my roof. Humility like this is one of the strongest evidences of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. We know nothing of humility by nature, for we are all born proud, to convince us of sin, to show us our own vileness and corruption, to put us in our right place, to make us lowly and self-abased. These are among the principal works which the Holy Spirit works in the soul of man. Few of our Lord's sayings are so often repeated as the one which closes the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector. Everyone who exalts himself shall be abased, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Luke chapter 18 verse 14. To have great gifts and do great works for God is not given to all believers. But all believers ought to strive to be clothed with humility. We should notice thirdly in this passage the centurion's faith. We have a beautiful example of it in the request that he made to our Lord. Just say the word, and my servant shall be healed. 
He thinks it needless for our Lord to come to the place where his servant lay dying. He regards our Lord as one possessing authority over diseases, as complete as his own authority over his soldiers, or a Roman emperor's authority over himself. He believes that a word of command from Jesus is sufficient to send sickness away. He asks to see no sign or wonder. He declares his confidence that Jesus is an almighty master and king, and that diseases, like obedient servants, will at once depart at his orders. Faith like this was indeed rare when the Lord Jesus was upon the earth. Show us a sign from heaven was the demand of the sneering Pharisees. To see something sensational was the great desire of the multitudes who crowded after our Lord. No wonder that we read the remarkable words. Jesus marveled at him and said unto the people, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. None ought to have been so believing as the children of those who were led through the wilderness and brought into the promised land. But the last was first, and the first last. The faith of a Roman soldier proved stronger than that of the Jews. Let us not forget to walk in the steps of this blessed spirit of faith which the centurion here exhibited. Our eyes do not yet behold the book of life. We see not our Saviour pleading for us at God's right hand. But do we have Christ's promises? Then let us rest on them and fear nothing. Let us not doubt that every word that Christ has spoken shall be made good. The word of Christ is a sure foundation. He that leans upon it shall never be confounded. Believers shall all be found pardoned, justified, and glorified at the last day. Jesus says so, and therefore it shall be done. We should notice finally in these verses the advantage of being connected with godly families. We need no clearer proof of this than the case of the centurion's servant. We see him cared for in sickness. We see him restored to health through his master's intercession. We see him brought under Christ's notice through his master's faith. Who can tell but the outcome of the whole history was the conversion and salvation of the man's soul? It was a happy day for that servant when he first began service in such a household. Well would it be for the church if the benefits of connection with the household of faith were more frequently remembered by professing Christians. Often, far too often, a Christian parent will hastily place his son in a position where his soul can get no good, simply for the sake of mere worldly advantage. Often, Far too often, a Christian servant will seek a new place where true religion is not valued for the sake of a little more wages. These things ought not so to be. In all our moves, our first thought should be the interest of our souls. In all our settlements, our chief desire should be connected with godly people. In all our purposes and planning for ourselves or our children, 
one question should ever be uppermost in our minds. What shall it profit us to gain the whole world and lose our own souls? Good situations, as they're called, are often godless situations and ruin to all eternity those who take them. <laughs>